Well, if you've got Matthew 13 open to you, you're doing good, and we're going to take a minute and pray together because what we're about to study and look at for these few moments before we take communion is very heavy material. And I don't mean it's intellectually hard to process, I mean it's very sobering because it begins talking about judgment and this parable in specific talks about hell and it's hard stuff. So we need to invite God to be our teacher, our Holy Spirit, that the Spirit within us would guide us, that we would understand this specifically the way God wanted us to. Would you join me in prayer over that? Let's pray together. Father, I know that you're pleased by your people coming together, coming together to know you better. We've not only been able to direct our attention to you through worship, and I thank you for the powerful worship that we just had, but we get to do that again through communion and celebrate what Jesus did for us. But before we do that, Father, we ask that you would guide us now as we study your word. We look at these things that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, and they can be confusing to us, but you wrote them down for a reason. These are things you wanted us to know and not to ignore and not to make fun of, but rather to take seriously because it affects eternal destiny. So God, I ask that you would guide us now, especially as we talk about these really very sobering things. Guide our hearts, make us tender to your word. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is coming again. All right, most of you remembered that, good response. If you're new to New Hope, you may not know that we've been working through a parable series of actually since October. And Jesus is using the parables to set up that reality that he's coming again. So that truth frames everything that we've been examining. In October, when we studied the first section of the parables, it took us all the way up to Christmas. And then after Christmas, we had a little bit of a break, and then we started again in January with parables. And this section of parables that you're in are known as the kingdom parables, in which Jesus is describing this unique era of time between his first coming and his second coming, between the first century and so far all the way up to 2020. How much longer will God tarry? We don't know. He might kick the can down the road 500 years, but it could be tomorrow. We don't know. He doesn't give us a date. No one knows the date. Well, in this amazing section that we're studying, God uses these parables to describe the characteristics of the era between his first coming and his second coming. What's it like during that period of time? So as you open up Matthew 13 in a big picture, you find that Jesus has been giving indisputable evidence up to this point that he is the Messiah. Verse 1 actually indicates that people are following him in mass quantities because they're convinced there's something remarkable about him. In verse 1, it shows that he goes down to the seashore, he sits in a boat, and he begins teaching people. And week after week after week, we found in the last six weeks, seven weeks, that each of these parables are so packed with information that indeed Jesus is really giving the characteristics of our era. Well, that day he'd been healing diseases and he'd be restoring eyesight and he'd cast out demons. But as a result of that, the Pharisees that surrounded him actually accused him of doing that by the work of Satan. They said, what you're doing is by the power of Beelzebub, the worker of iniquity, and Jesus said, you've just committed the unpardonable sin. You've attributed the works of God to the power of Satan. 
Well, even though the leaders have turned their back on him, Jesus is still incredibly popular. So in verse 2 of Matthew 13, you see that there's large crowds, and he begins speaking to the large crowds about the nature of this kingdom. And you might remember, we started with the parable of the soils, and he talked about the different types of hearts and who would hear this gospel information. It took us all the way to last week when we looked at the pearl of great price. And in between, each week has given us new insights into what Jesus was describing. Well, now he comes to the end of it, and he gives a description of the end of the church age. So he sends the followers out. We see this in Matthew 13, 36. Those who had been sitting on the beach, look up with me on the screen. He, he Then he left the crowds and went into the house. We saw that last week. So now what he's doing is he's giving the disciples a personal lesson. They get a private session with Jesus. And he gives them insights that they wrote down that you and I have in front of us right now about these last days and the last days of the era of this church age. And the focus is completely on the judgment and what's going to happen with this kingdom. And it's similar to what we looked at a couple weeks ago with the wheat and the tares. I hear this. This is why it's so sobering. This is a huge warning. There is a judgment coming. There will be a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. And it's a very, very vivid picture. Some of it's even gory. But at the same time, it reminds us of our great hope and the reason that we get to celebrate communion this morning, why we can be thankful for what Jesus did. So if you would, join me either on your device or on your hard copy of the Bible, or perhaps you want to follow along on the screen, and we're going to start in verse 47. We'll just go through the whole parable as Jesus described it. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it upon the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 51, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Let's bear down on Jesus' description in the very beginning. Look with me up on the screen at just that first phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that's been cast into the sea. The image that he's using is really familiar to the people of the first century. They know exactly what he's describing, especially to the few disciples who were professional fishermen. Some of those guys made their living at the sea, so they know exactly what kind of net he's talking about here. And for others, they lived near the seashore. And so they saw this on a daily basis. They would see these individuals pushing their boats off the beach. I spent a lot of time a few years ago studying the first century fishing economy, understanding what it did to Israel and what what it meant to Rome at this period of time. And it was a huge machine that was part of their economy of the day. On the Sea of Galilee, there, there were three basic types of fishing techniques. Some were used by the commercial fishermen, some were used by sports, some just for an individual who wanted to catch fish for dinner that night. The first one would be most familiar to you. It was merely a long pole with a line and a hook, and you would catch only one fish at a time. You find Jesus telling Peter to use that type of fishing technique when they need a coin to pay the tax that was due. He said to Peter, take out a line and go down and catch a fish, and you'll find a coin in that fish's mouth. A remarkable miracle. You should read about that sometime. That's one method, but the other two techniques actually involved nets. 
One net is small and one net is pretty large. The first one that's small, you, you see this word in your notes and you see it on the screen. It's this particular long Greek word, amphibolistron. It's a fishing net that's fairly small. If you've been to a pizzeria or perhaps you've seen it on television where the individual who keeps throwing dough up above their head and they're spreading the dough out into a bigger and bigger circle to make a, a pizza pie, you've got the image in your mind that's right. This is a circular net that was carried by one individual and they would typically put it on their shoulder and cast it off their shoulder. This particular type of net was used by the disciples when Jesus called them to follow him. Let me just read this to you, Mark 1.16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. That's an amphibolistron. The brothers were taking turns using that net, casting it out, this one that they carry on their shoulder. Why? Well, because it had weights on it, and like that pizza pie, it would open up in a large circle as they cast it out, and it would drop and trap. The word amphibolistron means to impede motion. It would trap the fish and stop their motion. But there was a rope attached to it, and with that rope, they could pull it back, and it would turn into a sack, and they would pull their ketchup on the shore. Well, that was a common type of fishing, that, that use of a net, but the other one that Jesus is talking about in the parable here. That's a Saguenay, and you see that word in your notes as well, and this, this is another technique. And if you've been to modern-day Alaska, perhaps you've been to Oregon or maybe out to Maine, you've seen this kind of net. It's still used today. It's, it's called a seine net or a Saguenay. That's where the word actually comes from. This word that you see up on the screen is a large net, and it hangs vertically. It's like a wall, an impenetrable wall to the sea fish, it's got floaters on the top, it's got weights on the bottom, and it creates a wall in the water. And when the fish are near, it traps them from any movement. This particular type of net would catch anything in its path. Anything that happened to be near it, when they began dragging it in, it would occasionally pick up other sea creatures. This is what Jesus is referring to here. So in verse 47, he says, And gathering fish of every kind into its net. Now, of every kind, kind, the word kind is the word genos. In the Greek language, you, you hear that word and you might be thinking genealogy. You might begin thinking genetics or genome. Well, that's a strange way to define fish. Why would Jesus use the word genos here? Fish of every genos. Everything is being caught. Well, we'll come back to that word genos in just a minute. Everything is being trapped. Weeds, objects that have been dropped from other boats, the tire from Pharaoh's chariot. I'm just checking to see if you're listening. Fish of every kind, including the eels including the turtles, things they're not supposed to eat. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, you find specifically God gave them instructions. Don't eat those things without scales, eels, snakes. But of the fish that have fins, dorsal fins, and have scales, you can eat them. Those are clean. Those are the good fish. But Jesus says it gathered in every kind, every genos, that is a strange way to describe fish because that word actually means ancestry. All the races. That's a pretty strange way of talking about fish, but it's not a strange way if you're going to begin to talk about the races of mankind. 
all the genealogies that have been drawn into this net. And Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 48, see this on the screen, and when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. So the net's filled, and it takes many, 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 many people to bring it in. And it takes hour upon hour just to drag it to shore. And by the time they get it to shore, it's only then that they can sit down and begin pulling the fish out of the nets. And those that are clean, they can keep. They transfer over to containers, and those that are not, they cast them aside. So verse 48 continues, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. Fish that are going to any market of any distance whatsoever were immediately transferred over to freshwater containers, things that they could survive in because if it had to go 20, 30 miles, they wanted them alive and well when they arrived. But those that are going, let's say it's in the city of Capernaum and it's right nearby, they would throw them immediately into baskets and deliver them right to the market. So we've got this imagery that Jesus has just used. Verse 47, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, what's it like, Jesus? You've given us all these parables all day long on the beach, and now we've got this private session with you, and you're again saying the kingdom of heaven is like, what's it like? And he ends by saying, but they threw the bad away. Go back with me now. Because right on the heels of everything that he's just described, this real world image, Jesus says this in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked. I'm guessing the disciples didn't see this coming. They're tracking with him all the way through the parable. Yes, finally, a story we get. It makes sense. They're professional fishermen. They're tracking with them. He's speaking our language. We get this until, until he hits the part about the angels taking out the wicked, until he hits the part about the end of the age. And Jesus knows this could be confusing to us, so he breaks it down vividly, and he gives this image of God's judgment, and the end of the church age could be in the next couple of years, we don't know, but there's going to be an end coming when this mystery kingdom, this church thing, stops. Now, the parable of the wheat and tares that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it spoke specifically about the coexistence, how the believers live together on the planet. In 2020, we are the wheat and the tares. We live together. And there's a tangled mess, according to the Bible, but all together, but you remember how it ended? It, it, it ended with a separation. Well, Jesus is going to talk about this coming separation now. This parable goes further. Because during the church age, God has permitted unbelief. God has permitted unrighteousness. But a time is quickly approaching, and it's closer today than it was yesterday. It's closer this Sunday than it was last Sunday. A time is quickly approaching when his patience is going to end and there's going to be a judgment. So verse 49 says this, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And this is where it becomes really, really, really hard. I told my wife, Lori, a few days ago, I feel like I'm wearing a weight this week. This is so incredibly sobering, church. And it should humble us as we read this. It's talking about the first phase of the judgment, the, the physical separation of the wicked from the righteous, the tares from the wheat. 
That this is reality. That this is truth. It should make us feel heavy. It should compel a response. Rather, what it seems to do in society is it compels denial. Like, you believe that? You really think that's going to happen? You think that's coming? Well, we're told in Scripture, Jesus said himself that people would mock that thought, that things are just going to continue on as they've always been. Peter wrote about this. Let me show you what he said up on the screen, 2 Peter 3, 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You want to have an accurate view of God? You want to have an accurate theology? Your accurate view of God, your accurate view of theology has to be rooted in the Word of God. If you base your opinion or your thought or your theology on what you feel, your feelings will betray you every time. Feelings betray you. You begin thinking, it's not going to happen. God wouldn't do that. He's a loving God. I wouldn't believe in a God that would separate and judge people like that. That can't be true. Well, those, those are feelings. My view of God must be based in his word because that's the only true source of his nature and his character. Today, the vast majority of earth's population is like the fish in the sea. They're seemingly unaware they're unaware that there's this eternal net that's coming in around, and it's drawing in on everyone. The boundaries of the net remind us from time to time that they're there. A virus sweeps across the world. The death of a national celebrity. A loss of a family member, a friend. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves bumping up against that net. That's right, there is a limit to this age. That's right, this does come to an end. There is a time when the nation will stop talking about Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter. There is a day coming when the coronavirus will be gone from this planet. But until then, these are reminders. These are the edges of the net. And during those times, the edge of the net, it rocks our world. And when it rocks our world, it's shocking and it's frightening. And it causes people to wonder what's next, but just as quickly as the net is bumped into, we swim off in another direction wanting to escape it, disappearing into the murky mist of the water, hoping that maybe the net's not on that side. That, that's common human nature. That's what we do, and then we arrive at the opinion that, well, there's no net really. That was just a, a phenomenon. God has thrown a vast net. It's his sovereign plan to draw all of humanity into this place where they will stand before him at some point because the coming judgment it includes every single human. Just as that Saguenay net encircles the fish, most are like the fish. They don't realize the net is encircling them. And there's a time when they will be dragged before the king. This advancing kingdom of God, this church age comes to an end, but now they're just blissfully unaware of the approaching end of this age. So Jesus has to give us this reality check about that moment that's coming. That's what verse 49 is. 
Look with me one more time at the screen. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you need to know that Jesus' focus here is specifically on the judgment of the unbelievers. That final judgment that he's referring to here, it's called the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation 20. I need to read it to you just on the chance that some of you have not ever seen it before. It's a judgment that's separate from the judgment of the believers. The judgment of the believers is for reward, but the judgment of unbelievers, well, it's for what Jesus is about to talk about here. Look with me at Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Watch this very carefully. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Just bear down on that phrase. The dead were judged. The dead were judged. However, if you are in Jesus, that's not you. Amen? You want to say amen with some gusto there, folks, because what you're about to see is going to make you wish you could go back in time and say, I wish I'd said amen louder, because that's not you. You are free, church. You are free indeed, because if you're in Jesus Christ, he's freed you from the judgment. He's freed you from the white throne. It's a good thing to remind us ourselves of that every once in a while. Like, I am free. When you lift up the cup this morning and you lift up the bread and you take those elements of communion, you could just say under your breath, I am free. I am free because of what Jesus did for me. How about if we say that on three right now? We'll just say, I am free together. One, two, three. I am free. That's a great way to remind yourself that Jesus took all of this The separation that he's talking about, the separation of the good fish from the bad fish, the separation, it's going to include all living persons and all who died also. Watch what John wrote. Look with me on the screen, John 5, 29. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Some wonder when they read this parable, why is Jesus repeating this information? We just saw this in the parable of the tares. It almost looks word for word like the same thing he just saw in the parable of the tares. Well, on one level, understand what's going on here. He's talking about the separation of unbelievers from believers. In the other parable, it was talking about the believers and non-believers living together here in this age right now. But on a deeper level, what's really going on here is it should not surprise us that Jesus repeats himself because he constantly is warning He's constantly talking about the horrors of hell. And he pleads, come to me. Come to me if you want to be saved. All you who are weary and you're looking for rest, come to me because hell was not created for humans. Hell was created for Satan. It was created for the demons. It wasn't intended that humans would end up there. The only reason humans end up there is because they choose to rebel against God like Satan rebelled against God. So they get the punishment of Satan. 
Look with me on the screen at this statement, Matthew 25, 41. The eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil. See, hell was built for Satan. So Jesus warns us constantly. He says, what it's going to be like in those last days is what it was like in the days of Noah. Well, what was it like in the days of Noah? Everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. The Bible says they were making up their own laws, their own rules. They didn't like the rules that were in place by government, so they're doing as whatever they see fit in their own eyes. And Jesus says this will be the characteristics of humans during that period of time. Look at this, Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. If you're new to church this morning, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church, you need to be reminded of this or told this. What you're about to hear, God takes no pleasure in. He is not willing that any would perish. That's what the Bible says. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, but he's a just God. Therefore, there has to be justice. There's a reason Jesus cried over Jerusalem. They refused to be saved. They refused to receive who he was. And so, therefore, he wept over them. God takes no pleasure in this. So we come to this really gritty part of this parable in verse 50. It says this, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I don't know of a harder subject that I've ever have to talk about. And every couple of years it seems like it, it comes up. And we have to address it because it's part of this parable. It's part of being a Bible church, a biblical community. You don't just skip over and do the things you only like. You have to hit the hard things head on too. And I know of no truth that's harder to process than this doctrine of hell. Yet to deny it or pretend that it's not there is done so at one's own peril. The, the Bible doesn't pretend that it doesn't exist. The Bible's very clear about it. So to make fun of it as though it's some cartoon is the height of ignorance. It's willful ignorance. It goes beyond that. Did you know that Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone else? Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven. Jesus speaks of hell more than he speaks of love. Jesus speaks of hell more than all of the writers of the Bible combined. He talks about it more, and that's God. It would be impossible to accept the horror of what you're about to hear if God himself did not undeniably declare the reality of it. And even with him declaring it, people still deny it. Hear this. Hell is not party central. Hell is not a bad hangover from last night's drinking. Hell is not a busted relationship. Hell is not going into oblivion and ceasing to exist. That's not what hell is. 
There is no pleasure in hell. It is utter torment with eternal separation from God. But the reality is, just as our finite mind cannot comprehend what's in store for us in heaven, our finite mind cannot comprehend what's in store in hell as well. So God has to give us some imagery. He gives us some word pictures to describe it for us. So Jesus begins by calling it the furnace of fire. That's an image we can partially grasp at. And we're being told these ones are being thrown into that furnace Just bear down on that phrase, those four words, Matthew 13, the furnace of fire. That means hell is this place of constant misery. And the torment that's described with it, the biblical imagery for it, is that it's also a place of outer darkness, meaning completely black. People jokingly say, I'm just going to go there and hang out with my friends and we're going to party. You won't be able to see people. Scripture speaks very clearly about that. Look with me, Matthew 25, 30. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. Throughout eons of eternity future. Can you imagine never, ever again seeing light? That's hell in itself. That's enough to drive you absolutely stark raving crazy. That it's blacker than black, yet we know there's a flame there. How can there be a flame and yet there be blackness? How do I understand that? Because hell is described as a fire from which the damned never find any kind of relief. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil. Another element of it, it's this place of torment of both soul and physical body. And if you've got it in your mind that the soul is annihilated at death, that the soul just goes out of existence, that's totally contrary to Scripture. At death, a soul either goes instantly into the presence of God or it enters into hell. There's no in-between. It kind of shocked a few people a couple weeks ago when I said, there's no purgatory. You can't find it in the Bible. There's no way to support it. It's a tradition of man that individuals created as though they can work themselves out of purgatory in order to find favor with God and escape somehow. You won't find purgatory in the Bible. It doesn't exist. There's no place of in-between. We're going to look at that this summer when we do one of the parables in which Jesus described hell a little further. At the resurrection of the dead, this picture this net. It's gathered all of these genos, and they're dragged up onto the shore, and they're being separated out, and there's this resurrection that takes place. As a resurrection of the dead, the bodies of both the saved and the unsaved are raised. Whether they died from wars or from disease or dismemberment or just old age, everybody, whether cremated or buried whole, is going to be reunited with a soul. Believers are going to be given a perfect body with which you get to enjoy all the splendor of heaven. God's going to give you a new build. How great is that? We're pretty excited about that. But just as you gain this perfect resurrected body to enjoy heaven forever, the Bible is very clear that those who reject Jesus, they're reconnected with their body also. But it's not a pretty thing. It's not beautiful. 
And with that body, they're going to endure hell forever without being destroyed. And there's this horrific image that Jesus gives in what's going on in hell at this very moment and will go on throughout all of eternity. He calls it this in Mark 9:44. It's the place where the worm does not die. And it's so gross that I really hesitated in putting it in, but it's God's word. How can you not know this? You've got family members, you've got friends, you've got coworkers who are clueless about this stuff. You need to know this information. What is Jesus talking about when he says, where their worm does not die? When a mortal physical body decays, we know worms do what worms do. You drive down any of the road systems in Michigan, you're gonna see a dead animal. You see a, a dead deer. And one day it's a, a fur covered body, the next day the rib cage are sticking out, the, the carnivores like the birds are working on it, but before long, worms do what worms do. And they go to work on the flesh. And they only leave the bone behind so that after a couple of months all you've got is a skeleton. But once all the flesh is consumed, there's no more decay from the worm. But Jesus is saying with these bodies of the unbelievers who are in hell, they're never consumed. The, the worm does not die. The worms of hell continue feeding for all of eternity. Like, how gross is that? See, hell could only be this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth because the horror of it is so horrific. It leaves me at a loss for words. And it's going to be experienced in varying forms according to Scripture. Uh, many individuals think of well, Hitler and Lenin. They're, they're going like to the bottom of the pit of hell. Well, that's not what the Bible represents. There is varying forms of punishment according to God's word. There's greater torment for some than others. How do I understand that then? Well, I'll show you how to understand it. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? See, the writer's saying both die and both get punishment but one's going to get something more severe. Who's that? Well, that's the one who willfully rejected Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to the city of Capernaum? Capernaum was Peter's hometown. Jesus did lots of miracles. They saw him. They had him in their village. And he said, woe to you, Capernaum. For I tell you, in the day of judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you because they had the king of kings in their midst. They had greater information. There's varying degrees of punishment. And yes, if you're wondering if it's eternal, it is eternal, because Jesus uses the exact same words to describe heaven that he describes hell. The exact same duration, it's the word aeon, and it means without end. These will go away into the eternal punishment Therefore, it leads me to a conclusion. 
All this information that you've just heard leads me to one clear conclusion. Hell is the absence of hope. You got hope this morning? You're in Jesus? You've got hope. And and it's not like, I hope the Spartans can beat Maryland. It's not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is a reality that has not just happened yet. That's the way the Bible uses hope. It's a reality that has not yet occurred. So if you're in Jesus, you've got a reality that has not yet occurred. You've got a hope. You're looking forward to eternity. But in hell, it's the absence of hope because there's no end to this. So Jesus ties it all together, and he says to the disciples in verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Have you understood what I meant by the parable of the soils? Have you understood that one out of four will receive the information? Have you understood the parable of the seed sower? Have you understood the parable of the mustard tree? Have you understood the pearl of great price? Have you put all these things together? We'll come back to this next week, but he's using the word tsunami. Tsunami means have you assembled all these thoughts? And how those who reject end up in hell. Have you understood? And they said yes. It's clear from the Gospels, from the parables that we're looking at, that the Gospel is not simply the offer of heaven. It's the escape of hell. It's the avoidance of the eternal torment, the warning. True, he's not willing that any would perish. But the reality is we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So we've got to have Jesus intercede for us. If it's true that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, it's not the sin that I committed last week that's going to put me in hell or the sin perhaps that I haven't committed yet. A person doesn't have to choose hell to go there. They only have to ignore Jesus. They only have to reject him. I said, I don't want anything to do with that. See, the reason you get to celebrate, you're probably wondering how in the world this links with communion. The reason you get to celebrate this morning, you get to lift the cup and you get to lift the bread and you're going to witness to each other in just a moment and say, I believe. The reason it's such good news is that the gospel has the power to save you from your eternal destiny without Jesus. You good with that, church? That's the reality. That's why we celebrate what Jesus did. So when he said, remember, When you lift the bread and when you lift the cup, remember, it's not just the breaking of my body, it's not just the shedding of my blood. Remember what I've saved you from, that Jesus died and that he's coming again, and it's built right into the communion passage. Let me read that to you to prepare you. If you're new to New Hope, we do this every time, once a month, we read this passage. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's you, new hope. You're in verse 26. Did you know that? Listen to yourself. For as often as you, new hope, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You ready to be a proclaimer this morning? You ready to be a witness that Jesus saved you from hell and he destined you for heaven? That's why Paul says don't take this lightly. Take this really seriously. That's why he writes, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here at this church, we don't require that anybody be a member of the church. You don't even have to be a regular attender here. What we ask is that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not, why would you want to lift the bread and lift the cup? And no one's going to look at you weird if you just stay in your seat and don't participate. Maybe you're just checking this out. But for believers in Jesus, you're implored by the scriptures to examine yourself right now. Where do I stand? Is this true of me? Can I lift the bread and lift the cup, witnessing that I believe? Examine yourself. So we give you time to pray, and I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Just quietly bow your head and begin talking to the Father. And when you're ready, come up to one of the tables, or if you're in the center section, you can use the front tables or the ones back in the atrium, whenever you're ready. If you're physically able to stand, would you stand with me? Jesus is coming again. And what you're about to do confirms that you believe that. He said, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that he died to spare you from hell. Scripture says to think on lovely things, whatever pure, whatever is noble. Well, hell is not too lovely, and we don't want to dwell on it, but we need to know about it. So we dwell on the lovely thing, which is that Jesus died to spare us from hell. And so he said in the night that he was betrayed, this bread is going to represent my body, which is broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, I know that these witnesses bring you great pleasure. It brings joy to you to know that we believe and that we're willing to proclaim and we're not ashamed. We're so grateful for the one who gave his life for us. So we willingly declare that we believe. Thank you for taking all the weight of all of our sin. Thank you for making us free, Lord Jesus. We're grateful. It's in the name of our soon coming king, the majestic one, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all God's people said, amen.